It's homecoming day. Can you believe it? I can't. But there it is on the classic motorcycles calendar, bought from the pound shop and pinned to the side of the cooker. The 27th of April. A date for so long, so far away. A date that had become simply another illegible scrawl amongst all the appointments and visits from social services, occupational therapists and all manner of health professionals of one kind or another. Now it's here. Today, this afternoon, at two o'clock, after the care home lunch, I will bring my mother back to the bungalow she once shared with my father. Before she went into the care home, three long years ago now, a place that was for her purgatory and exile. I've booked a specially adapted cab to transport my mum. The little red Honda I'm driving will take her things, but you'd need two people to move my mother's dead weight from wheelchair to car seat. That might be okay at the care home, but here at the bungalow, it's just me. Just me, and soon her. You'd think, wouldn't you, that after six weeks to prepare, I'd be ready to receive my charge. And I am, I guess. What I mean is, I've done everything I can to put what we might need in place. But with so little experience to go on, I can't be sure. I've told those in authority what I'm doing and asked for help from those who have resources, one often leading to the other and back again. Social services, so dubious about the plan at the beginning, have become supporters, especially since they've understood we're self-funding and won't be asking for money. In my defence, there have been some significant challenges. Finding a care agency willing to work alongside me has proved surprisingly tricky. Linda and her team, who looked after my mother in the years leading up to the care home, and then my father until his death, have already said no, and tried hard to dissuade me from taking on the role, for my sake, as well as my mother's. I've made a dozen inquiries of other agencies, and it's been a frustrating exercise. It just hadn't occurred to me that demand so outstrips supply and I've ended up attempting to persuade commercial agencies where viable clients with ready cash willing to compromise. Because she is unable to move independently, even to turn herself in bed, my mother's physical state is the primary obstacle for most of the agencies. Many I've approached simply don't take on clients who require hoisting and manual handling. Their carers don't have the training, or so they tell me. And I get the impression they don't need or want to take on such an onerous client. I've made matters considerably more difficult for myself by insisting that I want to be directly involved in the care. There are two good reasons why I've done so, and a third if you include sheer ignorance. The first, and most important, is the whole notion that my mother should be cared for by those who love her and who are familiar to her. She had caring strangers in the care home, now she will have caring family. Tad incompetent, perhaps, but with shared memories and a personal connection. The second, rather more prosaic reason, is we're short of money. And what there is will go further with just one professional carer visiting each day at set times. Finally, after many calls, I have found an agency that will work with me, on condition I take myself on a manual handling course to protect their liability should anything go awry. Perfectly reasonable. 
The course took an hour and a half, and now, with my certificate in hand, I look forward to becoming a key member of the team for the first official care visit today at 6.30pm. But I can't think that far ahead, and I'm pacing again. The hospital bed, metal-framed and wheezing gently as the electric motor pumps through the air mattress, is positioned against a dining room wall beneath a cabinet still full of crystal glasses and spare plates. Of course, the dining room table had to go, and has been dismantled and sits forlornly in the garage, legs bundled together and laid on the concrete floor like a kidnapped victim, where once the red Honda was cosily parked up at night. My father would turn in his grave, or at least shuffle in the cupboard. With the advice of a district nurse, I've ordered incontinence pads, blue, super-absorbent for the night, and yellow for the day, and put some of each in the bedside cabinet to hold medications and creams and hairbrushes and even a lipstick, just in case. I may have over-ordered on the pads, as several cardboard boxes are stacked in the garage alongside the table, enough to last for months, at least to my mind, but I am told we may be changing my mother three or four times a day, and running out will be a problem, as a new order takes weeks to arrive. I write a reminder on the motorcycle wall calendar, just in case. So, trial and tribulation behind us, the scene is set, and only awaits the star of the show. I've cooked a homemade lasagna, with as much love as I could muster, and in sufficient quantity to last us both a few days, in case it all goes horribly wrong. I've brought some jars of baby food, stewed apple and so on, some yoghurt and plenty of soft fruit, because I don't know what will work best with her dysphagia. I've got soups and buckets of ice cream for the same reason. When I check the kitchen clock, I see it is after 12. I should go. Well, this is it. D-Day has finally arrived. Um, I've packed up stuff. Suitcases. Actually, this morning the sun is shining, so first job just to go along to the care home and pick up Mum's stuff and try and break the news to her that, um, well, today's the day she's going home. I have to say, I have no idea of, you know, whether she's going to, to miss her husband, whether she's going to be comfortable at home, um, you know, whether she'll be entertained. So, I do feel at risk. I do think it's a difficult thing to do. It's just the alternative is so much worse. I mean, to leave her there, it just, it just seems like criminal to me. Even though I've had all the warnings and people telling me you, know, you can't do this, you ruin your life, and so on and so forth, this is not an act of self-sacrifice. It's just a rational thing to do. I mean, you know, my mother is ill, but she's not dead. And the fact that you know dementia and Parkinson's make it difficult for her to respond to people it doesn't mean that it's not a great deal going on underneath the surface. I punch in the code and push open the front door of the care home to find the reception desk deserted 
as it often is at lunchtime. I hesitate before going into the day room, suitcases in both hands and one under my arm, glancing towards the manager's office that appears to be dark and empty. I'm thinking I should be engaged with some sort of formality before retrieving my mother, but there's no one here to tell me what to do. I go through to the orangery, the day room for the residence. My mother is in her usual chair. I sit down next to her. I want to tell Mum about the plan for the big day. As soon as I arrive, she's starting to cough. There's one thing I'd like to do is get rid of that cough. Hmm? I'll go and start packing up. <clears throat> Don't die on me now. That'd be terrible. <laughs> I need the Spanish to get you out. Yeah, right. You're wonderful. Hello, how are you? Fine, thank Good. you. Good. She's going today, yeah? Yeah, I'm just going to start packing up some things. Okay. Do you want then... us to help you? Or Wolf, we can I don't do know. It? I don't know. I can, as you wish. Yeah. Where, where is the bag? I can pack it. Okay. Um, well, I'll go and get them. They're outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, please. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the coming for you so we can put you in a wheelchair and fit you in. Isn't that strange? I kept promising you and promising you. And now the day has come. <laughs> well, that's quite exciting, isn't it? This will be your last lunch here. I don't know how you're going to find my cooking. I've seldom been in my mother's bedroom before, which may seem both bizarre and negligent, maybe only twice, once to move her in and once when I visited and she was not well and had stayed in bed for the day. I try to put these thoughts out of my mind. There's nothing especially unpleasant about the room and nothing even remotely personal or homely. I blame myself for that too. Apart from the radio by her bed, which I had hoped would be some comfort, and which I notice is unplugged with the aerial folded away, I've done so little over the years to make this room hers, and all at once I feel a terrible pang of guilt. Why not? I'll pack up quickly. On the broad window sill, there are photographs in frames, those I did bring. My daughters, me, my sister, and one of the whole family, including my father and my ex-wife. It was taken on a day out in Windsor Great Park many years ago, when the children were small and I was still married and my father was still alive. We all looked surprisingly happy. I lay the cases open on the bed and begin folding the clothes without much care, knowing I'll wash everything when we're home. There's permanent marker on every single item, bar some dark socks, with the room number, 37, and my mother's initials. Seeing those letters and numbers, it occurs to me I may skip the washing and throw the whole damn lot away. Well, that's it, pretty much. It's surprising how little there is here. So, we'll 
clothes, nappies, several pairs of shoes, a few used up toiletries, and an orchid, an orchid in the window which I bought, I don't know, two years ago maybe. And the nurse was just telling me just hasn't stopped flowering ever since. Just continues to flower and flower. I was going to leave it here, but I'm tempted to take it back, actually. It seems somehow to be a kind of, I don't know, symbol of her, her fight for life or something. Who knows? You can get sentimental with these things. But pretty much that's it. So um, I'm just going to load these bags up in the car and then go and see her again. I make a final check of the bathroom, close the cases and ferry them to the car. I take the magical orchid and put it carefully on the passenger seat. I hope the move won't disturb the karma. I feel I'm going to need it. I bring back with me a large cardboard box with a variety of goodies inside and put it on the bench in the still deserted reception. There are two dozen 25 centilitre bottles of wine and dinky boxes of chocolates, together with a range of biscuits and sweets sufficient to be shared amongst the many carers with, I hope, an element of choice and something for everyone. I wanted to make sure this little gesture of thanks goes to the workers and not the managers, and keeping everything small was one way to do that. The friendly receptionist Tracy, who finally appears, agrees to make sure the right people benefit. They're playing bingo again in the day room. It's now a quarter to two. Welcome. Select a carer from the list on the left for the user. Now select a user from the list on the right. And mum is dozing in the second-hand wheelchair. The old armchair that was hers for so long is now vacant. I begin to wonder who will sit there in the future. There's still no sign of a manager as we sit waiting for the taxi to arrive at two o'clock. I'm almost miffed. And for some reason I'm exhausted. We sit in silence. I've been so preoccupied with our little drama... It only now occurs to me to look round the day room for the last time. Three chairs down the row from my mother sits a woman with one foot twisted grotesquely back on itself. The foot rests on a red damask footstool in front of her. She's always in her chair every time I've been, but not today, which is strange, because she never makes the move to the dining room. Her lunch is brought to her. I've never seen her with a visitor, and I've not seen her make eye contact with anyone, not even a carer, bringing food or drink or medication. She often has a newspaper open in front of her, and appeared to be always chewing. It was only when I looked a little closer I realised she wasn't chewing food, but forming words and chewing those. Often, it seemed to me, angry words. There are fewer men, and for some reason they seem less distinct, one from another and all from the women around them. As the chap in a wheelchair I took to be a visitor, distinguished, well-spoken type. First time I met him, he motioned me over, told me he was just going outside for a cigarette. Then he leant closer to whisper, rather depressing here, isn't it? Poor old buggers. This is it for them, you know. It was only later I found out he was not a visitor, but a resident, and he was not allowed to smoke at all, inside or out. Seven. By itself, number seven. Hooray. Then there's Daphne, who sits some distance from us in a wheelchair. She has bright eyes and a habit of sucking in air through her teeth with a wet sound as if she's salivating. Often I'll pass close to her as I take one of the spare chairs stacked against the wall, and as I do so she will smile and say a coquettish, Hello, an impression only confirmed when she once added, My, you're a big boy. Margaret, 
she of the fabulous Irish lilt and now a hundred years old, is in her own chair calling out, Nurse, nurse, what should I be doing? To anyone passing by. Visitor, resident, carer, as she always does. All day, every day. 4-0, line 40. I miss Margaret the most. I don't know if my mother will miss this place. Very oddly, I realise I might. Is this taxi for you? Is he here? Yeah, good Ah, thank you. He's lovely. Is he? Brilliant. I'll go out and meet him. One, four, Taxi's here. 14. You ready? He's really, really nice. Brilliant, thanks. Thank you. I'm going to go meet the taxi man. Seven and five. Say goodbye now. The last place you'll be, will be here. I'm mm. going to say goodbye. So we'll see you again. All right. Take care. I mean, thank you for everything. Um, Tracy's got some gifts for you all. One and eight. Eighteen. The girls are just writing out the meds for me because oh. it's a bit complicated for a simple bear like me. One and two. Number twelve. Well, he isn't playing bingo. Cheerio, Darcy. Nice to see you. Bye. Bye, Elaine. Thanks a lot. Oh, Toria, bye bye. Thank you, ladies, so very much. Can I just steal that pillow? Yeah. Pam. Sorry, darling, but that's Rogers. You can't take that. Yeah, of course. Tablets. Thank you. A list of everything that's in there. Lovely. All Thanks. Right. All time and everything. Okay, fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Open up the house, my darling. It won't be long. Two minutes. Are you still there? <laughs> That's my girl. Side, look, uncomfy, I think. Are you? I'll get you a cushion when I get inside. So, do you want to be out or in? Out? Yeah, okay, nice. I won't put you in the full sun. Let me get you a cushion to sit you up a bit straighter. a bad job. I'm going to have to really learn how to do this, aren't I? Mm. <laughs> Hello, gorgeous. I got ya. I got ya. Next time. 
Join me and Mum for our first afternoon together, our first care call, and our first incident. You'll find I'm still coming to terms with the shock of finding letters amongst Mum's things from the care home. Just three or four, but the most recent only a couple of weeks ago. Turns out they're all from my former lover and partner, a woman I haven't heard from for many months, not since we broke up when I was still in France. I'll tell you more about those next time. You've been listening to Me Too Mama, written, voiced and produced by the author, who must remain anonymous for the sake of his mum. Me Too Mama is a family affair. The assistant producer is the author's daughter, Leah, and the associate producer is the author's sister, and now co-carer, Karen. Title music is by Wes Hutchinson, with incidental music by Puddle of Infinity, both stars of YouTube's audio library, very generously making their work available to poor producers like me. Original music is by Leah, This podcast is a Me Too Mama production. All rights reserved.